Well, this morning is a special morning because finishing this great book, the book of Hebrews. Can you believe it? Don't answer that out loud, right? We spent quite a bit of time in this book, haven't we? We started this study a year and a half ago, and uh, while we, we could have finished it sooner without all the breaks, I feel like that those breaks have been necessary because this book is a hefty book. It takes time to dissect. So today I want to end by beginning with the ending, and then we're going to rewind a little bit and look at the last three things that the author calls for his Jewish Christian audience to do in light of Christ being supreme. So skip down in Hebrews 13 to verse 22. The author of Hebrews says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So the, the author reveals his intentions for writing this book. He has meant for this book to be a word of exhortation or encouragement. He is saying, I've written to encourage you. I've written to exhort you. To do what? Well, he tells us throughout the book, right? To consider Jesus, to not drift from Christ, to not turn away from Him, to not look beyond Him, but to look upon Him, to hold Him up in His proper place as the supreme King Priest that He is, our great Savior, our great Lord. He is encouraging His readers to view Jesus in the proper light, to hold Him up in the proper place, and to look to Him and trust in Him and cling to Him and follow hard after Him. He says, I've just written a brief word to you of exhortation. Now, be honest, how many of you have felt as if the book of Hebrews was brief? Anybody? Well, technically it is. It's one of the shorter books in the Bible, only 13 chapters. Doesn't take a lot of time to read through, but though it's not a long letter like Romans, it's a hefty one, right? It's a very hefty letter, definitely takes time to dissect. He also encourages his readers in verse 22 to bear with his word of encouragement in this letter. The word translated bear means to accept it as being valid and true. He is calling for them to receive this word and keep it with them always. My prayer for us. Church, is that we would love and cherish this book, that we would receive it as being true and that we would value it and truly benefit from its teaching and keep it with us always. Many of you have shared with me how much you have really benefited from studying through this book. That's, that's good. That's the writer's intent. Look at verse 23. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send greetings, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Now, notice he mentions 
Timothy here, that great disciple of the Apostle Paul, obviously a close friend of the author of Hebrews. Some believe that the mention of Timothy here indicates that the author of Hebrews must have been Paul. A lot of people don't think too highly of Timothy as if he wouldn't have more friends than just Paul. No, he's got more friends than that. And uh, we have talked about why uh, I don't believe this book was authored by Paul. If you look at it uh, in the Greek, grammatically, it's completely different. Paul's Greek is a lot more wordy. There are some grammatical things in Paul's writings that are not true of Hebrews. Paul was very, very wordy. I used run-on sentences quite a bit. Hebrews is in some of the most excellent Greek in the New Testament. There are also certain things mentioned about the author of Hebrews that would not be true of Paul, consistent with him as well. For more details on that, you got to go back and listen to the first part of this series, okay? We don't have time to get into that. No, Timothy had more friends in ministry than just Paul, and this author here is one of those. He tells this group of believers that Timothy has been released. Now, we're not told why he was locked up, but we can assume that it was probably gospel-related. He says, I hope to be reunited with him and with you soon. Notice he also calls for them to be loving toward their leaders and fellow laborers in ministry. He sends greetings from other leaders. He says, those saints from Italy send you Greetings. We, we learn here, and especially we learn through our study of the book of Acts, that there is this interconnectedness in the early church. Here he sends greetings from believers in Italy, probably from Rome, but the writer seems to indicate that, that he might be talking about other areas of Italy as well. The gospel is continuing to move at this time. God's kingdom is continuing to advance. He ends the letter the way many writers in the New Testament, some of them begin with these sort of greetings. You, you see this as you study through the epistles. Very common greeting. He says, grace be with all of you. Very common ending. It's also fitting to say this to this group of believers he's been writing to encourage to not drift from Jesus but consider him and live faithfully for him. To do that, they're going to need God's enabling grace. They're going to need the inward work of the Spirit of God to will and to live in this way. He talks about that in the last set of instructions he gives in this book to this Jewish Christian group in verses 15 through 21. So let's rewind now, back up, and let's look at verse 15 to begin. Over the past few weeks, we have looked at several practical lessons for living in light of Christ's great person and work in Hebrews 13. Over the past few weeks, we have learned that because Christ is supreme, we're to love others, honor marriage, be content, Follow in the footsteps of the faithful, not be carried away by strange teachings, and be willing, if it be God's will, to endure shame in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we are going to learn three final ways we should respond in light of the fact that Christ is supreme. So Hebrews 13, we're going to look at verses 15 through 21 to end. The author tells us first in this passage that in light of Jesus being supreme, number one, 
We should continually offer sacrifice to God. Now, some of you who haven't read ahead, you may be scratching your heads at this point here thinking, wait a minute. I thought that there was no more need for sacrifice because Christ is our ultimate sacrifice, our our perfect sacrifice who came and laid his life down, our final one-time sacrifice sufficient for all time. Is that not right? What is meant here when you say continually offer sacrifice to God? Well, we have the answer in verses 15 and 16. Look at it with me. Through him, through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now last week I alluded to the fact that Christians in the early church were looked down upon in this day because they did not have an official place of worship and an altar for sacrifice. Many non-Jewish people viewed Christians as this sort of weird offshoot, this neglected stepchild of Judaism. And they criticized them for not being established like the other belief systems in the Roman Empire. Christians were criticized for not having a holy city and a meeting place within the city like the temple and an altar. Well, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.10, we do have an altar. We, we do have a place of sacrifice. Christ is our altar. He accomplished our great work of salvation at Calvary, at the cross, when he laid his life down. That's our altar. And the work that was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ there was a one-time work for all time available to all who forsake their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And the author says, because of that great work accomplished at one time for all time by our great Savior, because there is no more need for sacrifice for those who draw near through faith in Christ Jesus, because of the great work that He has accomplished at Calvary, you believers should respond by continually offering up a sacrifice to God, a sacrifice of praise. Not a sacrifice of the fruit of the field. Not the sacrifice of a dead animal, but the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. The sacrifice of worship and praise. So believers, we learn here in Hebrews 13 that for us, New Covenant people, God's children through Jesus, Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an altar for us to approach and there is a sacrifice for us to make. The altar is the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice is praise and worship to Him. Notice what else sacrifice entails. Look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the sacrifices we are to make as believers is the continual sacrifice of praise and worship to God and the sacrifice of love and service 
toward others. Do you see that? That's, that's how we're to respond in line of the fact that Jesus is supreme. In light of his great person and work. After responding in repentance and faith toward him, we are to respond by, by offering up a sacrifice of praise and worship to God continuously and a sacrifice of love and service toward others. We are to worship God and we are to love and serve one another. That's why God created us. That's why he redeemed us. Did you know that? That's the reason you're here on this planet. God has created you to worship Him and to bring glory to Him, to His name, through worship of Him that is God-honoring with a heart that's right with Him through Christ and He has put us here to love and serve others. That's always what God has wanted from the very beginning. Some get this mixed up and they think, well, in the Old Testament... All that God desired was for his people to abide by these rules, adhere to these rituals, sacrifice animals while keeping their distance a bit from him. That's not what God ultimately wanted. That's what had to be done because of sin and separation before Christ came. The aim from the start was fellowship, right? That's where man began, in, in communion with God in a right relationship with him. But then man fell. And since the fall, this was God's desire always to reconcile and redeem us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It's always been God's desire. That's always been what he has wanted most. You know how I know that? All of scripture is how I know that. But also Psalm 51, Old Testament. Look at the verse up on the screen. Look at the passage here. David says, beginning in verse 15 through 17, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. A burnt offering has never been what God has been ultimately about. It was a temporary practice that cannot ultimately remove sin, but was necessary for a time. It provided a temporary covering. It was offered in faith, looking forward to the Messiah to come, and was a picture of the better work that he came to accomplish. But what God has always desired more than anything else is worship from his people that flows from a heart that is right with him and that is only made possible through the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews 13, 15 again. He says, through him, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can offer up a sacrifice of praise that is pleasing to God. Second sacrifice we've already talked about a little bit already. Let's look at it in more detail. First is praising and worshiping God. Second sacrifice is loving and serving others. Look at verse 16 again. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have 
for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the second part of the sacrifice involves taking your time and your money, your resources, and using them to love and serve others. This is what it's all about right here. And this falls right in line with Christ's answer in Matthew 22. Remember, he was asked what the greatest commandment was, and he took two and he rolled them into one. What did he say? He said, love God and love others. These are the sacrifices that we're to offer up continually as committed Christ followers. And guess what? Here's the great thing about the church. Christ established his church to enable his disciples to function in this way on a corporate level. When we meet together on a regular basis for worship, we meet together for the purpose of drawing near to the altar, right? Near to Christ. By drawing near to Him through His Word, to hear from Him, to lift up our hearts and our voices in words of praise to Christ collectively. The fruit of our lips. And also through the ministries of this church, you have an opportunity each and every week, almost each and every day, to love and serve others and minister to them through discipling them, through the men's and women's Bible studies and equipping classes and small groups with the Word, discipling them with the Word through intercessory prayer, through giving monetarily, giving of your time, using your giftings to meet the needs of others. Believers, are you making these types of sacrifices? Are you a regular worshiper of God? And I'm not talking about your Sunday morning attendance. I'm talking about what you do throughout the week. Do you spend time each day in His Word and in prayer and in your prayer time? Are you spending time praising Him? Are you lifting up a sacrifice of praise to God through Christ, both publicly and privately, week in and week out? Are you loving and serving others through the ministries of this church during the week when you're on your mission field, in your homes, neighborhoods, at school, or in the workplace? You should. Listen, like eating and sleeping, like breathing, worshiping God and serving others is to be the common practice of a Christ follower. It's to be your inhale and exhale each and every day. It's to be that naturally to us. That's what he's telling us here. If Christ is supreme, we'll respond in this way. Second, if Christ is supreme... Second response is, obey your Christian leaders and submit to their authority. Look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Here's how we know he's talking about Christian leaders. One, because of the context he's writing to believers in the church. But notice this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So he's talking here about obeying your church leaders. That's the, the context here, which I know is a little bit awkward coming from me because I'm a church leader, right? 
But I want to remind you once again that this is next in the text, all right? If I was just picking this text at random, then you might be able to say, ah, Graham's got an agenda here this morning. No, no agenda here. This is what's next. That's the great thing about preaching what's next in the text, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. God sets the agenda, not me. I just have to preach what's next. Would you agree that this is what is next in the text? Then would you then agree that I need to preach it? Okay, stop twisting my arm. I'll do it. All right, here we go. Let's look at it. First thing I want you to notice is very, very important, is that authority is a good thing. Can I say that again? Authority is a good thing. Don't, don't listen to what you hear out here. Authority is a good thing. It's important for us to hear that because those out there, they don't believe it. And, and many in the church do not believe it. You, you encounter as many people with issues with authority in the church as you do anywhere. While that may be due to the fact that, that they have experienced abuses of authority in the past, that doesn't get you off the hook from Scripture. Even if you have, that, that doesn't make you exempt from this. It also has to do with the fact, because people have issues with authority in the churches, because they, they've been influenced by the world. Because in the world, authority is a bad word today. We see this all the time. Ain't nobody going to be the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. We see t-shirts that poke fun at authority in the home with the husband and wife, and with the parents and kids in the workplace as well. Authority is a bad word, but guess what? God is crystal clear in his word that authority is good. It is of God. He has structured our world in this way. And he is the one who appoints rulers and leaders. There is an authority structure in government, in the workplace, in schools, in the church, and in the home. And they're all found in scripture. But guess what? It doesn't begin there do you know there's authority? We see authority in the relationship of the Trinity. Do you realize that? Two bad words in our society are authority and submission, yet we see that in the way God relates to himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Follow me here. Think about it. The Father sent the Son. The Son obeyed the Father. He came to fulfill the will of him who sent him. He took on flesh. He, he lived the perfect life. He Fulfilled, He accomplished the Father's plan. We're told he was also led by the Spirit. And when he accomplishes, Christ accomplishes our great work of salvation, the Holy Spirit is sent to apply the work of the Son, to draw people to Christ, to point to him, to highlight his great person and work. And we're also told that it's the Father who gives the name above all names to the Son. We see authority and submission in the Godhead. You want a great book on this, Bruce, Bruce Ware's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Relationships, roles, and responsibilities. Get it. It's, it's excellent. It shows you how practical it is to study theology. Because by studying the perfect relationship, we learn how we're to relate to people in society and people in the home and, and in the church, right? We're clearly told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Pretty clear, right? The head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ 
is God. And it's important to, to remember this as well. This is not an issue of equality. Oftentimes you'll hear that. Well, that means you're saying we're not equal. Now I can shoot that down really, really quickly. That's not what's being said at all. The Father and the Son are one, right? They're equally God, right? Say yes. Yes, they are. There is a difference in authority. Same in the home with the husband and wife. With the kids, Leslie and I are over Ava and Edie and Joy. But in no way is our life more valuable than theirs. Would you agree with me? It's not a matter of equality. Equal in person, different in authority. That's how it works. That's how God relates to himself. That's how he has structured our world. And like it or not, he has put this structure in place in the church. And again, it's good. It's not bad. Authority is good. It's from God. We need to be corrected on our view of authority. We also need to realize that God wants us to be in a church where there is this authority structure in place. He wants us to submit to the leadership of the church. Many refuse to be a part of the church for this reason. There, there are some in our world today who believe they can be who God has called for them to be apart from the church. They try to over-spiritualize it, sound super spiritual. says, I'm not going to be under any authority but Jesus. I'm going to be under man's authority, be under Christ's authority. I'm going to go, not going to allow anybody to teach me from the Word except for the Holy Spirit during my personal study of His Word. I, I've heard this, you probably have as well. The problem with that belief is that if one was truly under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and guided and directed by His Spirit through His Word, they would be a part of the local church and under the authority of the leaders in the church because that's what God calls for. Make sense? Listen, Hebrews 13, 17 completely squashes the idea that you can be who God has called for you to be outside the local church. How can you be obedient to God by obeying your leaders and submitting to their authority in the local church if you're not a part of the local church? That's pretty simple logic, isn't it? You can't. You need the church. And you need to be the people who are willing to place yourself under and respect the leadership of the church. Now, I, I want you to see here that authority in the church is not a dictatorship. The leaders in the church are under authority as well. Look at verse 17 again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, now, leaders, this passage shows us how important our role is in the church. We are keeping watch over souls. We have to give an account to God for the spiritual care that we have provided. Leadership in the church is not something to be taken lightly. It's something we need to really consider before we step into that role. We need to lead humbly. Going forward in humility, on our knees, guided by the Spirit through His Word. That's how we are to live, lead, because there is a greater degree of accountability for us who lead. Now, who will the leaders give an account to? To God, right? Some in the church feel as if leaders have to give an account to them at every turn. 
must run everything by them and answer to them as if they are the head other than Christ. Listen, if this is you, you need to let God handle it and trust that he's going to handle it a lot better than you could. We often foul things up when we step into areas of leadership where, where we don't belong. We take Christ's spot as the head, get into all kinds of problems. Now, does that mean you can't question leaders? Of course you can question leaders, and you can share when you have legitimate concerns, but you don't need to act like you are the head of the church because you're not, and that everything needs to be filtered through you and assume the worst about leadership in the church. What you need to do instead is pray. Pray and trust that God would do the necessary work he needs to do in the hearts and lives of his leaders because he's the only one who can. Listen, this is very important. You're not going to change anybody's heart by a harsh word of criticism. But God can by grace. Allow that work to take place. Give it over to him. Let him work where, where work needs to be done. Understand also his leaders aren't perfect. But get this, according to Romans 13, leaders are appointed by God and they have to give an account to him. So trust that if the, the local church that you attend is the true church, which by the way, if it's not the true church, you shouldn't be there. But if it is, trust the leaders of the church are appointed by God. And must give an account to him, therefore pray for them. Respond by praying for them. He also says not to cause them trouble because that will cause you trouble. You ever heard it said that troublemakers make trouble for themselves? You ever heard that? It's true. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, let them do this. Let who do what? Well, the middle of verse 17. Let them keep watch over your souls. Let them lead as those who will give an account with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I love this. The Bible is so very practical. He's basically saying this. If you respect your leaders, then let them, if you respect your leaders, if you let them lead with joy, things will go well for you. If not... If one is always just stirring up trouble, griping and complaining about the leaders in the church, it makes them miserable, the leaders miserable, the work they do miserable, and it'll be of no advantage to you. Everybody's going to be miserable. That's what he's saying. Have you ever been a part of the, a church where church doesn't trust the leaders, leaders can't stand the people? Church is trying to run off a leader or leaders and, and they are either digging their heels in or they're looking for the back door out of a ministry. Everybody's unhappy. It's miserable for everybody. It's very practical. Do you see that? Instead, we need leaders leading humbly on their knees in the power of God's spirit under the authority of God's word taking seriously the care they provide for souls as one who will give an account and we need congregants committed to obeying and submitting to their leaders in the church with joy trusting that leaders in Christ's church while not perfect have been appointed by God and must give an account to him 
Both sides need to be in the Word. Both sides need to be on their knees, and both sides need to be spirit-filled. That's key. He even requests prayer for the leaders. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Notice here that the author is is speaking on behalf of the leaders in the church. He is writing to them. He is expressing confidence in the character of their leaders and and their desire to act honorably in the, the way they lead. He is showing confidence in their leaders, but he's also requesting prayer for their leaders. And I am confident in our leadership here. If not, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't have been here long. I wasn't confident in our leaders. But I am asking for you to pray as well. We need the prayer. We need prayers. But I, that, so pray for us. Pray that we would continue with a, a clear conscience. Pray that we would be protected morally. That we would remain men of high character. And if you want to know the specifics of what to pray for your leaders, pray through 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. Pray that we would continue to meet these qualifications. Pray through that great passage in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26 on the fruit of the Spirit and how to walk in step with the Spirit. Pray this over the leaders in the church. The author of Hebrews not only requests prayer, but he also prays. For his Jewish Christian audience, that's our third and final point. We have learned in this great passage of this great book that in light of Christ being supreme, we should continually offer sacrifice to God, obey our Christian leaders, and submit to their authority. Third and finally, in light of the supremacy of Christ, we should also pray for God to equip his people to do his will through Jesus Christ. Pray for God to equip his people to do his will through Jesus Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21. This is the closing prayer of the book. After requesting prayer, the author of Hebrews prays for those he has been writing to, and he prays this very thing, that in light of Christ's supremacy, they would respond by by doing God's will. Look at it, beginning in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This right here is a great prayer to pray for one another. Let's break it down. Notice first the subject of the prayer is the God of peace. We learn from scripture that our God is a God who is seeking to be at peace with his creation. God wants to be at peace with us. Even though we are enemies of his because of sin, God makes it clear in his word that he is at work restoring this broken relationship that exists between us and him as a result of our sin. God is a God of peace. And here is how he has accomplished that great work. He sent his son from heaven to earth to become one of us, to act as our great shepherd, to lay his life down. Christ was was crushed by God for us. 
God, instead of bringing his judgment down on us because we deserve it, he instead brings his judgment down upon his son who did not deserve it. The great shepherd, our great shepherd, was, was struck down. He laid his life down for us. And then he was brought again from death to life by God so that we could be saved through His sacrifice, through His blood that was shed, through His resurrection, we could have life in Him and enter into this eternal covenant with God through faith alone and Him alone. The writer of Hebrews says, May the God of peace, the God who accomplished that great work, may He equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us, the God of peace working in us, that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love this prayer. Believers, please pray this prayer for me. And I'll pray it for you. We can pray it for one another. The reason why I love this prayer is because it is directed toward the God of peace. It is a request for Him to work in us, to make us who He has called for us to be in Jesus. For us to be who God's called us to be in Jesus, God has to do that work. Amen? That's what he's praying for. This is a prayer for growth and godliness. But here, the writer of Hebrews does not address our efforts at all. That is addressed elsewhere in Scripture. But here, he, he prays specifically that the Father will, will work in us to will and to do. Why? While God calls for us to work out our salvation, to put in the work, to grow in godliness, to, be, to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, that work will not happen if God is not at work in our heart and life. For you to be who God has called for you to be, you need the God of peace who has accomplished your great salvation to equip you with everything good that you need that you might do His will. You need Him working in you. That which is pleasing in His sight through Christ. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what you need. Believers, we need to be praying this prayer for one another. Praying that God would work in the hearts and lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Making them who he has called for them to be in Jesus. That's what we need. More than anything. I need that prayer. I know you do. We all do. In light of who Jesus is. And the great work he has accomplished for us. We should respond by praying that God would equip us, his people, to do his will through Jesus Christ. Now, before that can happen, before you can be equipped by the God of peace to do his will, you must first be at peace with God through his son. Let me say that again because that's very important. Before you can be equipped by the God of peace to do his will, you must first be at peace with God through his son. Are you at peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you turned from your sin? Have you surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, Scripture is clear that you're at odds with God, plain and simple. All of us are in one of two camps. Either Christ is your Lord or you're His enemy. It's the only two you got. No wiggle room in between. 
No place in between you can land. Either Christ is your Lord or you're his enemy. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Is he Lord of your life? If not, I pray today you would forsake your sin, make God's son your Lord so you can be saved, so that you can be secure in Christ and ready to be equipped to do his will. Let's pray together.